It is uh, Memorial Day Sunday, and I don't know how many of our uh, members uh, did the MRF yesterday. I think they did it yours yesterday. So if they survived or if it's tomorrow, uh, good luck to you. Uh, let's pray. Father, we, we are very thankful um, for the grace in which we stand. We are also mindful on this day of uh, families and uh, who have been affected by war, those men and women, Lord, who have died in uh, the service of our nation. And we pray that uh, their, their memory uh, would be honored because of their sacrifice. Uh, and in the saying that, Lord, we are always mindful then of the, the greatest sacrifice made, which is that of your son, sending your son to die for our sins. Father, those who gave their lives in service to our nation did so because they believed in something that was larger than themselves. And it is what you call us to when you call us to serve Christ. You call us to someone who is larger than ourselves, to a cause that is beyond our imagining in terms of its reach, in terms of its power, in terms of its ability to transform not just individual lives, but, but whole families, whole communities, towns, cities, nations, and the world. It is an amazing thing, Father, when we consider how at the beginning your people were truly the size of a mustard seed. And now your kingdom expands and grows across this world and we look forward to the day, Lord God, when Christ, who is the shore of our salvation, summons us safely home and we are in that good harbor that is the new heaven and a new earth. And we stand and worship with countless millions, billions who have come before and will come after us, who proclaim Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father united by one Holy Spirit in this great and glorious gospel, this grace of God in which you have called us to stand firm and proclaim with boldness, to proclaim with joy, to proclaim with passion. And Father, even to give our very lives to not just metaphorically taking up our cross, but also at times, if need be, and we thank you for those Christian martyrs, past and present and in the future, who have given their lives for the cause of Christ and his gospel. They are to be remembered this day as well. They are to be memorialized for their sacrifice and contribution to your church and to the faith in which we stand. And so we ask, Lord God, that we would be faithful as you are faithful, that we would not only remember, but that we would do, because to remember is to do. To remember is to engage. It is to take up and it is to follow and to be active in that pursuit. And so we ask now for the help of your Holy Spirit. Unpack this word, impact our hearts with it, we ask, for we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. <clears throat> well, I don't have a diploma to give each and every one of you here, but we have done it. Uh, today marks the, uh, the end of our study of 1 Peter. I went back in my notes and I, and I uh, saw that we started this journey on January the 8th. So that's a long time. Um, and 
I'm reminded, I don't know who it was, some comedian mentioned the fact that, you know, some of us like to watch shows, we like to binge shows on Netflix or Prime, and when you come to the end of a show, after you've watched all of these seasons, whether it's five seasons or ten seasons, you kind of left with this, you're like, what do we do next? Like, where, where do we go? Well, well, we'll get there. We have a series coming up on the Psalms, with, which are connected to our worship service here and what that means in terms of understanding the, the call to worship, to confession, and all of that. But today we're going to turn our attention on finishing 1 Peter, and come the fall, we'll launch into 2 Peter. So that sort of gives you a roadmap for what's coming up. Now, officially, 1 Peter ends, Peter's letter ends with verse 11, when he gives this benediction to, you know, God be the dominion forever and ever. So what we have here in verses 12 to 14 really is a, a postscript uh, in which Peter offers some final words of encouragement and instruction as, as well as uh, greetings from those who are in his company. This is why he begins this last section, this postscript, with by Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God, stand firm in it. And the this in that statement, the this is the true grace of God, refers to everything that Peter has written in his letter. He is an apostle. And in the New Testament, the understanding was that as the apostles wrote, they were writing, if you will, the, the words of the Holy Spirit given to them. So they were communicating the, the truth that Christ had given to them. So he wants them to stand firm in everything that he has written. He's speaking from experience. We read from uh, John's gospel at the end of John's gospel. Because when Jesus tells Peter, feed my sheep, tend my lambs, feed my sheep, that's in essence Jesus telling Peter, everything I have told you, Peter, stand firm in it by tending the very people my flock, my church that I have given to you as well as to all the apostles because they were in hearing of what Jesus said to Peter. And so it's by Silvanus then that Peter transmits or communicates this letter to this congregation. And Silvanus is also known as Silas. You may know about him. You can read about him. He's mentioned several times throughout the a book of Acts, Acts 15, Acts 16, 17, and 18. Silas, as he's known or called in Acts, he accompanies Paul on his second missionary journey because after Paul and Barnabas have a falling out and go their separate ways, Paul chooses Silas to go with him on his second missionary journey. It's Paul and Silas who are arrested in Philippi and who are singing songs at midnight in the Philippian jail when there is an earthquake and all the prisoners are fearing that they'll, they'll escape. Remember, the jailer is about to take his own life and Paul assures him, no, we're all here. And God uses Paul and Silas, Silvanus, to lead the Philippian jailer and his family to Christ. This is why Peter can say of Silvanus, he is a faithful brother as I regard him because these stories would have been told, would have been communicated throughout the church. Now, there are some who think that Silvanus wrote 1 Peter uh, in the same way that, let's say, uh, um, you know, a PR department of a company or of a politician may 
pen a press release. And they write this press release and then hand it to the, the person in charge and says, does this express what you want to say? And they say, sure, and they sign off on it. That's, the evidence doesn't, doesn't hold up, though. So when Peter says, it's by Sylvanus I have exhorted you and written you briefly, what he's saying is Sylvanus is simply delivering this letter that I have written to you. So Peter is through and through the author of this letter, as well as Second Peter also. And so Sylvanus delivers this message. The, <clears throat> the she who is in Babylon is a code. The she in that statement is the church. Babylon is Rome. So Peter, writing from Rome, is letting his readers know that the church that's in Rome is not only praying for, but is standing with his readers because likewise, they too, in Rome, have been chosen and they also have been chosen to suffer for the sake of the gospel. And so they're standing firm in the same way that Peter is exhorting and declaring for the, his readers to stand firm as well, continuing to do good. And then Peter refers to Mark, Mark as his son, in the same way that Tim, uh, Paul refers to Timothy as his true son in the faith. It's an interesting relationship that Peter has with Mark. This Mark that he refers to is the John Mark that you read about in Acts 13. This is Barnabas' um, relative that he takes along with him and Paul when they go on their first missionary journey. And it's this John Mark who leaves the company of Barnabas and Paul. And it's over this Mark that Paul and Barnabas have an argument so great that they go their separate ways. Barnabas takes Mark. Paul takes Silas. This Mark is also the Mark that writes the gospel. And it's believed, historians and scholars believe that Peter is the source for Mark's gospel. So here we have an interesting bit of irony in terms of how grace works. Because Peter is working with Silas, the man whom Paul chose to replace Mark, who left Paul and Barnabas in the lurch, so to speak. At the same time, he is working with Mark, discipling and training and mentoring him. Now, only the grace of God can overcome the awkward tension that is created by that kind of history. Can you imagine just Sylvanus and Mark sort of warily eyeing one another? Kind of the way a succeeding pastor eyes the person that he's replacing kind of looking at one another, like, are you, what's going, you know, can, are you trustworthy? Can I, can I really lean on you? Silas can't get too proud thinking that somehow he is better than Mark because Paul chose him. Mark can't get envious of Silas, cannot take an inferiority position to think, well, I'm lesser because I abandoned. No, the grace of God makes everything equal and both men are profitable for use. Both men are profitable for work in the kingdom. Both men are found to be trustworthy and faithful brothers. And they must stand firm by continuing to do good. And then Peter ends this postscript by saying, greet one another with the kiss of love, peace to all who are in Christ. Now, <clears throat> in Bible times, obviously, kissing on the cheek was uh, a very familiar way of family members greeting one another. I grew up in an Italian family, and I can remember until reaching, even in adulthood, having to kiss the cheek of my uncles and my aunts every time you greeted them. 
And uh, it was a, a bit of a shock to my to 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 Jill when we first were dating. We come, you know, first I'm bringing her to my family, and they're they're just smothering her. It was like, what? This is this is unusual. But this is how you greet one another in the West now. In the U.S., however, we've exchanged the kiss on the cheek for a handshake, for a hug, for a fist bump, or in some cases, just a look that says, "Sup." Some places do the bow, right? But it's an exchange. The, the thing is, it's not the kind of greeting that's important here. It's the greeting itself. It's acknowledging and recognizing one another, as well as any guests or visitors that come into our fellowship. If you, you think about it, if you would invite someone to your home, and they knock on the door, and you just, you know, you're in the, uh, the wherever, you know, maybe your, your entertainment room is, whatever, and you just shout, come on in! And you, know, and you just never get up to greet them. That's the kind of rude. But Peter's saying, greet one another that way. Let everyone who's in the family and outside the family know that they're welcome here. And I think, Maranatha, we do a good job at that. We, we try our very best, I think, to make visitors and guests feel welcome, directing them to, whether it's a nursery or end kids or things like that. So kudos to our, our welcome team and our greeting team, as well as after the service, folks, uh, try to you know engage with visitors. I would encourage us to continue to do that. And then finally, Peter talks about peace being given to everyone who is in Christ. The fact that we can have peace with God only through faith in Christ. And so the whole point of the end of the letter, after telling them that this is the, the grace of God, stand in it, he wants them to stay united. He wants, in the face of, of uh, difficulty and trial and persecution, he wants them to stay united. That's really the exposition of the postscript. But it's not the end of the sermon. I know you had hopes. It was like, this is great. It's 11.50 week. Yeah, we're, we're out of here. Bring on the bagels. <clears throat> not yet. Because <clears throat> here's an opportunity at the end of 1 Peter Right? I know it's the end of the school year coming up. Some of you have already finished your term, but I remember you know, getting ready for, for finals and things like that. You always had an end-of-year review, which re prepared you for the final exam. I, you know, I remember being uh, in uh, ninth grade French, and uh, we had all, the whole class had bombed the midterm. Like everybody just, pfft, it, was all, it was all composition, it was all French composition. What did Monsieur Voltaire have for dinner? And we all blew it. So we spent the entire last half of the year learning how to write in French. Answers to simple questions, like where did you go to dinner? What did you, what did you watch at the cinema? You know, who were your, and, and by the time we had that final, that was the highest grade I ever got in any final in my life. We had been prepared for it. That's my aim in the, the remaining moments that we have is to continue to prepare and encourage us. One of the things that we've been discussing as elders, one of the things that we're concerned about, particularly is from a preaching standpoint, is that we're, we're very good at dispensing and communicating knowledge. But what we want to see is more than just knowledge being received, we want to see knowledge put into action. Because knowledge is just knowledge un until it's actually put into practice. 
that Christianity really is truth in action. It's truth that is personified in the person of Jesus Christ, but it's truth that makes such an impact upon us that it, it mobilizes us to, to act and live in a, in a specific way that not only honors Christ, but also promotes and shares the gospel with our neighbor. And so we want to be able to, I want to be able to encourage you to do that. That's what Peter means when they stand firm in it. Because I'm telling you this, this information, not just simply that you'll know it, but that when you go through various trials, and those trials can be, as some of you have had floods in your homes, you've been burned out of your house, some of you have lost your job and you're praying and looking for another job, some of you are going through relationship issues, some of you have lost loved ones to illness and death, and you're, you're struggling at times to make sense of your faith, you know the facts, but now that trial that you're in is a God-given opportunity for you to put into practice everything that has been taught to you, not only from this pulpit, but in Bible study and with those who have been mentoring and training you. So that's our goal. That's what we want you to do. We want you to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. It's how Peter will end his second letter when we get there. We want to see this, and we see evidence of this. We see fruit in this in our, in our members, and we want to encourage that. But we're, we're also aware as elders, we're not going to sit on our laurels and just simply assume that because we're giving you the truth, you're applying the truth. We want to encourage you to continue to do that. And so in, in, his, in his letter, the thing that Peter has been focusing on from the start is, is really to point them to one fundamental exhortation, which is summed up in verse, at the end of verse 12. This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. And basically, whatever happens, he's saying, stand firm by standing together in the grace of God while continuing to do good. Because it's not just a matter of standing firm, sort of holding your ground, but it's standing firm as you're moving forward. It's sort of this paradoxical image. Of, of knowing what you believe and being firmly rooted and grounded in that so that when trials and storms hit, you're not moved because your roots are deep. And at the same time, moving. Moving forward, growing in that grace. And I, I shared with the elders, when we lived in North Dakota, when we arrived there in 1988, they were in the middle of a drought. I mean, it looked like moonscape where we lived. The prairie was brown. It was just this desolate place. The following spring, when the farmers had planted, the spring rains had come. And I, not having any experience growing up in farm country or knowing anything about agriculture other than whatever tomatoes I could get to grow in our parents' backyard, said, well, I told one of my farmers, you must be really happy that the rain has come. You're probably praying for more rain this spring. And my farmer said, oh, no, 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 Reverend, not at all. We just, we, we just need enough rain to let the seed sprout and send down its roots. I, I said, I didn't understand. He said, well, as long as there's no moisture above ground, the, the seeds will put their roots further and deeper into the soil so that when the latter rain comes in the late summer, the roots that have been gaining all of this moisture throughout the growing season get that second rain, and wham, they just shoot up. 
The same thing happens with our Christian life, I think. That during the dry times is when we are to put down roots, sink deep into God's word, sink deep into fellowship, because what the enemy would try to do is now separate you during those dry moments, during those dry times. But you're putting down, if you're putting down roots in the midst of trials, in the midst of a dry season, when the the word doesn't sort of penetrate, when the prayers seem to just go no further than the air out of your mouth, here is now an opportunity for you to grow deep so that when the trial ends, or even in the midst of that, at some point you turn the corner and you, it just there's a breakthrough, and then growth happens. The growth is even happening when you're putting the roots down. That's not a quiet time. That's a growing time, and you will bear fruit at the end of it. So Peter says, whatever happens, stand firm by standing together in the grace of God by continuing to do good. Continue to pursue holiness because we call on a heavenly Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Continue meeting together because we are being built up into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. Keep practicing, in other words, keep practicing what Jesus preaches before an unbelieving and at times hostile culture. So just to review very quickly what we have learned so far. So you go back to uh, chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Stand firm, knowing that God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, says Peter. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. When we looked at this way back when, we said that a living hope is that confident, unshakable trust in the trustworthiness of God. That we have a living hope because we have a living Savior, Jesus Christ, whom God raised from the dead. And that the same power that God raised Jesus from the dead is now the same power that he gives to us and imparts to us to follow Christ. And that because we have this living hope in an indestructible Savior... The inheritance, the reward that is promised us is equally indestructible. And I would add, unlosable, if there can be such a word. Because I know that if you're like me, there are times in your life, particularly when you're going through a trial, particularly when you're going through a dry time, when it's, you're afraid. I get a, most of us pastors get this question at one point or another, and maybe you've asked it. Have I committed the unpardonable sin? The unforgivable sin? And we always say the standard answer is, if you're worried about it, you haven't committed it. But you do worry about it. You worry about it when you're battling an addiction. You're worrying about it when you can't overcome a particular sin that's besetting you and dogs your heels. You're worried about it when your children aren't following Christ the way that you would hope they would. You're worried about it when you are doubting whether or not God truly loves you and you're worried that you have lost your inheritance, God says, have no fear, you have not. Live your life not by fear, but live your life by hope and faith in God's promise, which has been proven and guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
I'm, rem I'm reminded, you know, as, as any of you have been sort of reading through the, the, the tributes and things to, to Tim Keller, I there was a, Keller, they shared an excerpt of one of his sermons before he went in for his surgery years ago when he had thyroid cancer. And he remembers being wheeled into the, uh, the operatory there and thinking to himself as he was about to go under, he says, if I don't, if I don't come out of this, it's still going to be all right. Because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And if Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, everything is going to be all right. That's our assurance. How do you know that the inheritance God has promised you is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who are being protected by God's power? It's because he raised Christ from the dead. And if he raised Christ from the dead, do you think he's somehow going to drop the ball when it comes to you? As if somehow you're just going to get dropped from the, the data list? It's like you just sort of slipped off the hard drive? Not going to happen. Not going to happen. Live by hope, not by despair. Be driven by faith, not by fear. I wrestle with this a lot. You don't think I do, but I do. I wouldn't be human, and neither would you if we didn't. You worry about your kids? Give them to Jesus. Let your happiness be connected with the joy that God has in answering your prayer, not your children's happiness, because that's not going to work. Trust me on this. <laughs> Trust me on this. Our happiness, our joy, the source of it, comes from the knowledge that our inheritance in Christ is promised to us by God and will not be taken away. And it's out of that sense of security, it is out of that sense of joy that we pray, that we live, that we share the gospel. So stand firm in that. Prayer. Think on the word. Memorize the word. Study the word. Talk about the word. Seek the counsel and fellowship of other believers because we stand together in this or we stand not at all. Remember, Satan already prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He waits for the weak and the infirm to lag behind the herd. So our responsibility, not only as pastors, but as Christians, is to always be mindful of those who are hurting and who are lame in heart and spirit and walk with them. And to bring the herd, if necessary, bring the herd back to them. So stand firm, because we have been caused to be born again to a living hope. Then in chapter 2, we are to stand firm, knowing we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. This is verse 9 of chapter 2. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And Peter is drawing here, when we studied this before, he's drawing here from Exodus 19, where the Lord tells Moses, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation doesn't matter what the world thinks about the church. Because they think all sorts of things about the church. Some good, most not good. What matters here 
is what God thinks of his church. And what he thinks about his church is that we are to him a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So you're struggling perhaps with senses of, of feelings of inadequacy, with feelings of inferiority. I'm not as smart. I'm not as spiritual. How do you measure that? I don't know. But whatever feelings of inadequacy you have, know, know this. They are feelings. And feelings are not facts. That shouldn't be a revelation. It probably isn't. But it needs to be spoken again. Truth is fact. And the truth is God regards his people, you and I together, as a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Our mission is, is the same that was given to Israel, which was to be a light to the nations, which is to be salt to the nations, which is to create a thirst for God as well as a, a preserving force within nature, as well as a, a healing balm. At the same time, a stinging reminder that there is such a thing as an absolute truth and a judgment that is coming. And we want as many men and women and children as possible to be included in the number of those that are standing before the throne of God in Revelation 9 or Revelation 5 and proclaiming, worthy is the Lamb. And so we stand firm because that's our mission. That's our God-given role to be a holy priesthood, which is what we are. We become that the moment we confess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The whole duty, uh, says Samuel Ward, the whole of our duty as men and women is to give ourselves wholly to Christ, soul, spirit, and body, and all that is within us, dedicating and devoting ourselves to his service all the days of our lives. Our identity is found in what Christ has called us to do and in what God has created us to be. Christ has called us to be salt and light. God has created us in Christ to be a holy priesthood, a chosen people to declare his glories to the world. That's you. That's me. You look at yourself in the mirror. I mean, it's not like the old Saturday Night Live, Stuart Smalley thing. You know, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. I'm not saying that. I'm saying you look at yourself in the mirror, look at it through the reflection of God's word. What does God say about you? What does God say about us? What does he say about our people? Years ago, I remember listening to a message by Harold Bussell. He was dean of chapel at Gordon College. And he was counseling a young woman who was just struggling with whether or not God accepted her and whether or not she was good enough. And she had written all over her little apartment on three-by-five cards, I love God, I love God, I love God. And none of it seemed to be working. Dr. Bussell said to her, how about you try this? Throw away all of those little three-by-five cards and write on a new set of cards, God loves me. God loves you. Revolutionize everything. Most of us go through life thinking God is angry at us, even after he saved us, because we're not somehow measuring up to a standard that we ourselves have created, and we're always going to fall short of that. Well, what does God say to us? Be faithful. Do you love my son? Feed my sheep. Tend to your children. Love your wife. Love your husband. Love your neighbor. Do you love me? Then just show it. Just be what I have made you. Stop trying to be. Just be it. So stand firm in that. 
And then the third thing that we are to be reminded of is in chapter 3, verse 8. Stand firm by treating one another with love, grace, and humility. You can see how Peter's flowing this, right? Where we stand in relation to God in Christ, how we stand in relation to the world, now how we relate to one another. Finally, he says, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. We walk through this. We talked about having unity of mind requires that we live in harmony with one another, striving to be sensitive to one another's needs. And I think Jill and I, we've talked about this a lot in, the, in recent days, particularly since announcing that we're going to be transitioning away from full-time ministry into some other kind of ministry. And I, so I'm not, just, I'm not just, you know, throwing out a, a, a blanket compliment here just to do it. Of all the churches that we have been a part of, of all the churches that we've been privileged to serve and to be part of, you, you <laughs> have inexpressibly touched us with your kindness, with your love, and with your support. I want to encourage you to keep doing that. Because that's what sets not only Maranatha apart, but that's what should set Christians apart from everyone else. That we are living in harmony with one another, caring for one another truly sympathetic toward one another, doing nothing, as Paul says, from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, counting others more significant than ourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I, we sit around our, our elders' meetings, and, and I, I know, as I shared this before, I know what my weaknesses are, but I also know what the strengths of our elders are, and it's, it's this in, first, in Philippians 2. I can't tell you the depth of care and concern Pastors Eric, Pastor John, and Pastor Justin have for the members in this church and how it weighs on them. Because they truly want to see, as, as Paul does in his Peter's, everyone presented in Christ fully mature, complete, and they toil with great effort to do that. And I have seen it as well beyond the pastors just in engaging with others. And I won't mention names just because it's, you know who you are. But there's just this active engagement, this active expression of concern and love and compassion and sympathy, a desire to see not one person left alone. Not one person left without some sense, I care about you, God cares about you, we care about you. Continue to do that, says Peter, because when the odds are stacked against the church, there are times when we just begin to look out for our own interests and not for the interests of one another. But the only way we stay united is by staying united. We work out our faith as part of a community. So if you're struggling, if you're straggling, that's not the time to walk away. That's the time to, to, to seek fellowship, to seek prayer, to seek the compassion and understanding. And again, of, of the churches that we have been part of, this, this church, this body of believers does very well in that. And understand this. You're not going to get it right. 
And you need to learn to be okay with that. Take it from a perfectionist. You don't know what you don't know. And until you know it, you don't know it. I'm getting ready for uh, the clinical pastoral education course. It'll start on Tuesday and it'll run for 11 weeks. And I had to drive up last Tuesday to you know, an orientation and I was just really sweating the details because it required learning a whole new set of software and a whole new set of skills. And, and Jill can tell you, I spent most of the day on Monday just with a, a knot in my stomach. I was just, I was just awful. And the only thing that, as I woke up the next day, the only thing that came to mind was, Michael, you don't know what you don't know, so what are you getting anxious about? They don't, if you don't know these things, how can anyone expect you to know them? But you're there to learn. And if you make mistakes, they're there to help you overcome those mistakes. Well, the church is supposed to do the same thing. It's the enemy that says, well, you should be far along further along than this. You should know this by now. You should have memorized those psalms. You should have memorized those scriptures. You should be able to pray for X amount of hours a day, and you're thinking, I can't do that. No, you can't. So stop trying. Can you pray for five minutes? Can you pray for 10? Can you pray for 15? Well, let's start with that. And we, we want to encourage you to, to do that. A church that's filled with people that are expressing sympathy, compassion, brotherly love. Knowing that we're all saved uh, by grace through faith in Christ. And the last thing that Paul, uh, Peter says in this section in, in verse uh, 3 is uh, to having, uh, having a humble mind. To be humble about what we believe and, and to just sort of take that as our credo, you know, not my will, but, but your will be done. And then uh, the, the fourth thing out of chapter 4, stand firm knowing that we follow a faithful creator who uses suffering to strengthen our faith in his faithfulness. That's verse 19 of chapter 4. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. I read this verse when I was preparing for the message and uh, one, of my, one of my favorite hymns, uh, a stanza for one of my favorite hymns uh, by John Newton came to mind. Um, the, the, opening, the, the opening stanza says, Though troubles assail and dangers affright, though friends should all fail and foes all unite, yet one thing secures us whatever betide, the scripture assures us the Lord will provide. When you entrust your life to a faithful creator, you're entrusting yourself to a promise, and the one who is the ultimate promise keeper. Because when we suffer, whatever that suffering entails, whether it's a house that's flooded, a job that's lost, a relationship that's broken, whether it's an illness, whatever those various trials are, understand that they have come into our lives according to God's will. And he only brings trials into our lives at a time when he knows we can walk through those trials successfully because as we walk through those trials, this is the assurance that we have. Christ has prayed for us and is praying for us according to Hebrews 7.25. And when we don't know how to pray, the Spirit himself is interceding for us according to Romans 8.26 and following. So you have the double assurance that you were prayed for, and then the, on top of that, the assurance that everything you're going through is according to God's will. You're struggling with doubt? 
God is wanting you at that point to go back and realize on what is that doubt founded and how is that doubt cured. It's cured by reminding yourself and remembering the promise that God has made, that he has caused you to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Take a breath. That's for me. Because I get excited. But remember, Jesus himself endured all manner of trial and suffering, yet remained faithful. And it's out of his faithfulness the Spirit empowers us to be faithful. Because when we suffer according to God's will, he knows how much we can bear. And when it feels like we can't bear anymore, that's a feeling, not a fact. We lean on the fact that when it feels as if this weight, this spiritual weight, this emotional weight, this psychological weight, this physical weight is too heavy, remember, Christ is able to save to the uttermost all those who draw near to God through him because he lives forever to make intercession for them. And when you don't know how to pray, when the only thing you can do is, the Spirit intercedes with groanings beyond our words. This is why Peter encourages us. You think Peter, again, Peter, denies Jesus three times after swearing allegiance, saying, not only am I going to go to prison, I'll die with you. And yet he denies Christ three times, and in three times Jesus restores him around a charcoal fire on which fish is cooked because it was around a charcoal fire that Peter denies Christ three times. So stand firm because you are held in an indelible indestructible grip of grace that will never, never let you go. Even when foes all unite and friends should all fail, God won't. He can't. And then lastly, the fifth thing from verse of chapter 5, stand firm knowing God will reward our faithfulness. In verse 10, after you have suffered a little while, uh, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. I remember last week when we went through this, I talked about the fact that following Christ is sometimes like algebra, right? You know, we always wonder, like, well, we had to learn algebra in high school. Like, what do we have to solve for X? And then we learned that when we get out into real life, life is all about solving for X. It's all about learning and remembering the things that God has taught us. The trials come in various forms. There was a young man in our church in Ohio who is diagnosed with acute disseminated encephalomyelitis. Acute disseminated uh, encephalomyelitis. I have to say that over again. ADEM for short. It's a neurological disorder. It's a swelling of the brain that affects the myelin, a little thin coating around the nerves that transmit the electrical signals to the rest of the body. One by one, the, the major organs in this young man began to shut down. He had loss of vision, he had weakness, he had difficulty coordinating movement, he couldn't walk. He also had a a tremendous fever, and he, he had a hard time remembering things. He had all of those symptoms. 
And he was a young guy, had a young family. He was in his mid-30s. He spent weeks in the hospital. And when he was discharged, he spent months in physical rehabilitation. And I remember the Sunday that he stepped into the pulpit to testify how God had healed him, walked up with a cane. But that was like six months after that. But he survived. That was a trial of various kinds, of severe kinds. Some of us have gone through similar kinds of trials, maybe that severe, but have gone through trials and have been able to say at the end of it, well, I didn't particularly enjoy it, but I know that God led me through it. That young man testified to the fact that while he was near death's door, God restored him. When I think think of the things I go through, the things I experience, I think, well, am I going to die? No. Well, then what's the problem? It's all up here, Malanga. It's all in here. Don't be afraid. Have faith. Trust in the promises of God. His recovery of this young man reminded me of another stanza from the same hymn by Newton. He says, we, we, like sh- we, like, <coughs> we may like ships by tempest be tossed on perilous deeps, but cannot be lost. Though Satan enrages the wind and the tide, the scripture assures us the Lord will provide. Because when all is said and done, God will keep his promise. He will restore. He will confirm. He will strengthen. He will establish. Because he has called us in Christ to that glorious moment when the scripture that says all things work together for the good, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, for those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. How does he do that? Through the various trials that we endure. I've quoted several times from Newton's hymn. The, the title of the hymn is Though Troubles Assail. It's been updated by Matthew Smith and Indelible Grace to the Lord Will Provide. I love that hymn. At a very pivotal and particularly low moment in Jill's in my life, I learned that hymn. I had not heard it until that moment. Scripture is a wonderful thing. And it's a powerful thing that enables us to stand in low moments. And then there are times when you come across songs, hymns in particular, based on the Scripture, that take what the Scripture says and puts it in verse in such a way that it just, it's like an injection of vitamin B12 into the soul. It just brings you back alive. Listen to the final stanzas of this wonderful hymn by Newton, Though Troubles Assail. When Satan appears to stop up our path, and fill us, with, fill us with fears, we triumph by faith. He cannot take from us, though lofty is tried, this heart-cheering promise the Lord will provide. He tells us we're weak, our hope is in vain, the good that we seek we ne'er shall obtain. But when such suggestions our spirits have plied, this answers all questions. The Lord will provide. No strength of our own or goodness we claim, yet since we have known the Savior's great name, in this our strong tower, for safety we hide, the Lord is our power. 
the Lord will provide. When life seeks a pace and death is in view, this word of his grace will comfort us through, no fearing or doubting. With Christ on our side, we hope to die shouting. The Lord will provide. Brothers and sisters, whatever happens, whatever happens, the Lord will provide. And because the Lord will provide, he is our confidence. He is our refuge. He is our strength. He is our very present help in time of trouble. The maker of heaven and earth does not slumber, does not sleep. So whatever happens, stand firm. Stand together. Stand in the grace of God. Continue to do good. Because in all things, the Lord will provide. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that there is no strength of our own or goodness we claim. Yet since we have known the Savior's great name in this, our strong tower, The Lord is our power, and you will provide. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.